How many of you uh, remember Mother's Day when we had the potter with us? Remember Michael Ferris, the potter? I wanted to uh, just call your attention in the bulletin for you to notice that uh, we've invited him to come back uh, as he presents a uh, seminar on counseling. If you're a person that people come to you and, and ask you what to do about different situations and you think, boy, you know, I'd be much better off if I had a model to follow. Uh, that's what this seminar is all about. It's on July the 28th. It's one day. It's going to be right here at Trinity. And uh, we're going to invite, you know, people from other churches and so forth. But uh, there's a flyer that looks like this out on the uh, information booth if you're interested in finding out some more about that. And then I uh, also wanted to just mention to you, as you uh, hopefully recall from last week, that uh, this week is a uh, big pocket Sunday. And it's uh, to help Chris Camaro go to the Philippines. Uh, she'll be leaving uh, this month. And uh, so out on the uh, stairway, uh, you'll find uh, the big pocket. And uh, if you'd like to help out, if the Lord moves you in that direction, that'd be great. This morning, I'd like to uh, invite you to think with me about God's generosity to America. You know, uh, we are a blessed nation. Sometimes I watch the news and I think about uh, where other people live and how other people live. And I think about America and I think we really, really are uh, a very blessed nation. God's generosity to America. I don't think it's really possible to read an objective, at least, account of our country and not realize that the Bible and the spirit of Jesus informed uh, the beginning of our country, the beginning of our country's history. They've been our guides in the past. The whole Bill of Rights, for example, uh, reflects an obvious familiarity with the Bible. Uh, We are endowed by our creator, the Bill of Rights says, uh, with certain inalienable rights given to us by God, okay? Uh, the freedom of belief, the freedom of expression, the freedom of assembly, of, of uh, petition, the dignity of every individual, the sanctity of the home, equal justice for all people. Where do these ideas come from? Why don't other countries operate on these ideas? Uh, they were informed by the Bible and by the very spirit of Jesus. And so, Uh, Christianity was the predominant faith in early America, and God has been uh, richly, generously uh, uh, with his blessing on America in our past. Now, you know, many religions, it seems to me, are tied to ethnic groups, right? Uh, We speak about, you know, the Jewish nation of Israel, and ethnicity and religion are one and the same, or the Hindu nation of India, or the Muslim country of Saudi Arabia, or Iran, or Yemen, or the Catholic nation of Italy, you know, and so on. The Muslim countries. But America, you know, is very different. America is a melting pot. Uh, America, from the very beginning, has been this conglomeration of people from different ethnic backgrounds. And America's ethnic diversity has found its commonality, if you will, in a system of values and laws uh, informed by the word of God. Somehow, Americans had to go back and find the truth beyond what their ethnic, uh, their ethnicity uh, had informed them. And so this system of values and laws informed by the word of God. Did you know that in 1931, which isn't all that long ago, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court noted that the United States is a Christian nation. 
Far cry from the Supreme Court of today. Uh, In the middle of World War II, President Roosevelt, in a meeting on a a ship in the middle of the ocean with uh, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, described the United States as a lasting concord or a lasting agreement between men and nations founded on the principles of Christianity. And do you realize that it was only in 1956 that President Eisenhower signed a bill to make In God We Trust the motto of American civilization and to insist that it be inscribed on all of our currency. But here we are just 60 years later after that in 2016, and that motto is being challenged in many, many different ways. In God We Trust. And so today, I think you're well aware, and we don't have to make a case for it, uh, there's a growing bias against everything that's Christian, even a denial of our Christian roots. Uh, You can compare textbooks that are used in our public schools that are rewritten in order to deal God out of the equation of our American history. And so uh, the very history that George Washington and Abraham Lincoln praised as foundational to our national well-being is all being challenged today. Psalm 33, 12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Okay, but today we have actually religious groups in our own country, in our own society, who want to impose non-Christian, or I should say anti-Christian, standards through the government and through civil authorities. Uh, People who are working hard to promote a godless agenda to be imposed uh, on everyone by the government. And I think you can easily think of examples of this trend uh, from um, creationism being uh, replaced with evolution to the Bible being taken out of schools to the Supreme Court telling us that marriage can no longer be limited to a man and a woman and so on and so forth and a whole host of things in between. There's a trend, there's a movement, there's a, a direction, okay? Now, as troubling as all that is, and I know we could spend a lot of time just talking about that, especially in this election year and reflecting on all that, as as troubling as it all is, I want to suggest to you that, you know, this has all been going on long before America was even born in 1776. Um, Let me direct you to Psalm 2. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2. You can find it in the Bibles there in the seats on page 448. And uh, it seems to me that when you read this psalm, you realize that there has always been an agenda to rebel against God. There has always been an agenda to rebel against the sovereignty uh, of God. But God is sovereign, and he does hold the ultimate power over creation and over all of mankind, regardless of whatever religion uh, people embrace. And uh, God has an ultimate say as to who and to what will remain for eternity and who will be blessed and and so on. And uh, he has revealed the mystery of the future, as we've talked about in previous weeks. Uh, There are several mysteries that the Bible comes forward and reveals, and one of them is about uh, the future. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, but about a third of the Bible, when it was originally written, was prophetic or talked about the future. And uh, when you go back, for example, and just think about the first coming of Jesus and look at all the scripture that was uh, revealed, uh, what that first coming was going to be like, you notice the accuracy of the scriptures in talking about the future. And so now God talks about the second coming of Jesus. And in the same 
I think um, vain, uh, is very accurate, and so we can know what's going to happen. And God has revealed that ultimately uh, only what's reconciled to him through faith in his son Jesus uh, will remain. And so uh, it becomes prudent for us to uh, listen to what God has revealed. But the psalmist in Psalm 2, uh, I think, is living in a day kind of like our day uh, as we think about it, especially in this election year. And so um, he asked two questions to open this up in uh, Psalm 2, verse 1. Uh, the first question is this, you know, why do the nations rage? What's wrong with the nations? Why are the nations in a tither? Why are the nations fighting each other? Why are they, you know, worked up? And second question, why do people plot in vain? Why do people make plans and make strategies that make no sense? Why do the people ignore God and go about trying to live without him? And that's kind of the description uh, that the psalmist then addresses in this psalm. He recognizes that there's lots of citizens in the world that are given to anti-God thoughts and behaviors. And so let me just read the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's kind of like the psalmist is saying, you know, well, what's wrong with our world? What's wrong with our culture? What's wrong with our society? What's, what's wrong with people? And uh, you notice that um, in these uh, questions, uh, the first question is about the nations. Why do the nations, the, word for, the Hebrew word for nations there is goyim. And goyim is anybody that's not a part of Israel is the nations, the, the secular uh, nations, non-Israel, in David's day. and then uh, But Israel's included in the second phrase of this uh, psalm, and the peoples plot in vain. Why do even God's people make stupid plans and plot in vain and uh, make plans that go against God? Why do the nations rage and why do the people plot or make plans against God? And, and notice what he says, you know, these uh, plots or plans uh, are vain. It's always vain. It's always useless, if you will, uh, to go against God. But people insist on doing this all the time. And, uh, you know, if you kind of ask the question, whoever wins going against God? You just know that that just doesn't happen. You can't win. You're not going to move God. You're not going to change God. You don't win. And so it's in vain that we would plot against him. Okay? It's kind of useless. And then uh, verse 2 says, look, you know, it's not just the people. It's the leaders. It's the kings and the rulers. It's the people who are in charge. It's not just the people. And uh, notice what the rulers do. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Uh, they, they get themselves together. There's always this thought that human beings have that there's power in numbers. If we can just get enough people, we can get our way. And so there's always people, you know, trying to uh, get larger numbers together and uh, calling summits and holding meetings and signing treaties and firing each other up. Today we call it globalization, you know. If we can get all the leaders to agree and we can create an agenda and uh, then we can move forward and we can solve all our problems. It's kind of, it always reminds me when I think about this of the Tower of Babel. 
When all the people spoke one language, they thought, well, if we all got together, we could kind of overcome God. We'll build a tower. We'll get to be taller than him. And, you know, we'll be able to run our own deal. And uh, so many of the um, efforts that the leaders make to get together uh, uh, are an effort that are kind of, that's kind of like that. Uh, but look at this. This is really interesting. It says, you know, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. That's one thing. And also against his anointed. Against his anointed. You know, it's one thing to talk about God. It's another thing to talk about the God and Father of Jesus Christ, his anointed. People are pretty content to talk about God because they can put any definition onto God they choose. But when we talk about God, and this is in the Old Testament, this is in Psalm 2. He's talking about the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one. The one whom God has set aside to be our Messiah, uh, God's Messiah. Uh, If you were to think about this, can you name a leader in the world today... You know, who recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord and who seeks to govern and rule in their nation on the basis of their understanding and relationship with God's anointed one, Jesus. Can you think of a leader anywhere you know, who lives this way and who rules this way? And uh, you know what? What is, it, <coughs> what is it that people want? What, what is it that people want? Why are people so restless? Why is there so much chaos and confusion? And, and why do the nations rage and the people make plans in vain? What is it that they really want? Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What we really want is independence from God. Let's get these bonds, any which way that we're bonded to God and the cords which hold us together to him and the accountability that we have to him, let's not say he's our creator so that we understand that we answer to him for the life that he's given. Let's say that we just evolve from nothing. Let's cut the cord. Let's break the band. Let's become independent so that we can rule our own lives. Let's get rid of anything that ties us to God, anything that bonds us to him, because we don't want God telling us how to live. And I would suggest to you that it's the same spirit as um, the uh, enemy, Satan, came to our original parents way back in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember this? In uh, Genesis chapter 3, the serpent said to the woman, you know, God had said, look, don't eat. You can have, eat from all these trees, but not this one, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right and wrong. I'll decide that for you. And, uh, but the enemy comes, and the serpent says to the woman, you will surely not die. God said, you'll die. The, Satan says, you won't die. Uh, for God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes are going to be opened, and you will be like God. You will be like God. You can decide. You will know good and evil yourself. You can decide what's right and wrong. It's like nothing new under the sun, right? And then, you know, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The truth is, when you eat, your eyes will be closed and you will be deceived and you will be uh, cut off and blinded to the God who created you and the God who loves you and the God who sacrificed for you and the God who has great, awesome, generous plans for your future, you'll be blinded. Not that you will see, but you will be blind. What a lie this was at the very beginning and how it continues to taint the thinking of mankind, how it's spread across all the world, you know, and all of mankind uh, through our original parents. 
And that uh, craving for independence from God is kind of like the prodigal son. You know, I just can't wait to get out from underneath uh, the fatherhood of God. And it puts you on a path of self-destruction, even as the prodigal son so elegantly uh, teaches us. Uh, But people are too blind in their hearts to be able to listen and to hear what God has said. And so that's what people want. You have to... You have to love God's response to all of this, okay? In the next verse, let's burst their bonds apart. Let's cast away God's cords. You know, let's cut ourselves off from God. Let's ignore him. Let's pretend he's different than he is and so forth. Well, look at God's response, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. LOL. Laughs out loud. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. You know, uh, when you think about this, From God's vantage point in heaven, he laughs. You're not going to rattle God. You're not going to unhinge God by rebelling against him, by turning your back on him. I think it's kind of like an angry two-year-old kid, you know, who takes a swipe at their father because they're angry. It's kind of funny to watch, right? I can still remember, you know, just holding a kid being really mad, just holding on his head like this, and he's swinging away like this, right? And, you know, and we're having a fun just watching him being so angry and trying to vent, right? And I just picture that that's the, how God responds to all of this, you know. And uh, notice he, it says there that um, he who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. He holds them in ridicule. He's like, what's wrong with you that you would try, you know, to rebel against me? It's kind of comical. If we think about who you are and think about who I am. And how silly is it for somebody made out of the dust of the earth to try and rebel against the God of eternity? What a, what a silly thing to do, you know. Um, and God's not unhinged by it all uh, when we think about this. And then God responds, right, after he kind of has a laugh about the whole thing. Then in verse 5, it says, then he will speak to them in his wrath. He gets mad. He gets angry. He will speak to them in his wrath and, um, and, uh, and terrify them in his fury. Uh, God gets angry. And uh, rebellion, you know, puts people at the receiving end of God's judgment. And it's being stayed for a while, but eventually it will end. Rebellion will not go on forever. There's an end coming to it, and it's obviously closer today than it's ever been. And you can read about it in the Bible, in the book of Daniel. You can read about it from Jesus' lips in Matthew chapter 24. And you can read about it especially in the book of Revelation when God will come a second time in the person of Jesus and vent his anger on everything that's evil and that's wrong. And Jesus is coming back the second time, the Bible says, not as the Lamb of God, but as the Lion of God. Right? The first time he came as a Lamb, but the second time he's coming uh, as a Lion and uh, I, I always think uh, there's many places in the Bible that talk about that day, but Revelation chapter 6, I think, is a, a graphic description of what that day is going to be like, and it stays with you. Let me just read a couple of verses, uh, Revelation 6, verse uh, 13, 12. Uh, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black like sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? What a day that's going to be. This little rebellion against God makes him angry and there will be an end to it. And the Bible talks about it, you know, many, many places pretty graphically. Uh, But in the meantime, um, Psalm 46 talks about the fact that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. There is a a presence of God in the world that comes down like a river. We sing this song once in a while, you know, um, about the river of God sets my feet a-dancing. And uh, in, the, in this big context between God creating us and God coming back and, and destroying what's evil and so forth, there is a river that comes, and, and the Lord, the, the Most High God, is in the midst of that river, and it will not be moved. You can't get rid of it. And God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. And so in the midst of all of this, in the meantime, before that happens, um, God tells us that he is always available to us. And of course, we on this side of the cross understand that he has provided a way for us to be reconciled and to avoid uh, that wrath that's coming against the whole world. And so in the meantime, God says this in verse 6. Um, he will speak to them in his wrath. He'll terrify them in his fury. Excuse me. Um, As for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Don't miss the um, parallelism between the kings of the earth and God's king, Jesus. Right? The kings of the earth gather together. The kings of the earth are going to, you know, plot in vain ways to uh, cut their ties from God. But God has put his king in Zion, on his holy hill in Jerusalem. Uh, Zion is another name for uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the people uh, who have uh, come back to Israel since 1948, when Israel was reestablished as a, a state, are called Zionists. And uh, God has set his king on his hill. And that's where Jesus came the first time and died on the cross, and that's where uh, Jesus will return to when he comes back uh, the second time uh, to take on evil and the devil himself. The fruit of his first coming will be realized at uh, the onset of his second coming. The new Jerusalem that the Bible talks about will come down from heaven, will hover over the old Jerusalem, and Jesus will rule the nations, the whole world, from that new Jerusalem. And so... What a, what a great, awesome, you know, what do we do when our nation is going crazy against God? How do we, how do we Christians respond? And then um, God explains kind of what's going on, how he sees it from his perspective, what he's done about it. I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then in verse 7, Jesus talks, and Jesus responds to all of this. And, and he says, um, I will tell of the decree. The Lord God said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Jesus is not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another religious leader who started a religion or whatever. He's the very son of the only God. He's the son of God. He says, I'll tell you about the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, God said, and I will make the nations your heritage. 
I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth will be your possession. Someday the Lord will rule from that new Jerusalem and the ends of the earth will be his possession. And what a great, you know, I always like to think of the world as God originally intended it to be back when he made it in Genesis. And to think that Jesus will come and restore us to that uh, kind of uh, existence. Ask me, God says, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So we go from the nations raging and doing their own things and wanting nothing to do with God to God saying, listen, there's a day coming, you know, when I will rule over the nations uh, and Jesus will reign from shore to shore. And uh, verse 9 says, you shall, here's another thing that God said, you'll break those nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so uh, <clears throat> three times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is pictured with a rod of iron going through uh, throughout the earth, accomplishing uh, these things. And so uh, what, what's really going on between the first and second coming of Jesus, I think, is verse 8, that God is in the process of making the nations his, that someday when the Lord comes back, there will be people from every tongue and tribe and nation who will come together uh, in the rapture of the church from the earth, and we can read about it again in Revelation, and what a great, great occasion that's going to be. And so that's uh, why missions is so important. It's why uh, having... Um, uh, Chris, there you go, having Chris go to the Philippines as part of, you know, this process of bringing the nations uh, to the feet of Jesus. And uh, if we're not reconciled to him, uh, we'll be broken to pieces like uh, a piece of pottery that's whacked, you know, by a rod of iron. And so if you're a believer, right, if you um, really do believe in God, if you take him seriously, if you believe his word, if you're a follower of Jesus... What are you supposed to do when your nation gets crazy and tries to rebel against God? What is the way forward for us as Christians? How do we, you know, deal with uh, the reality of what's going on? And I want to suggest that then uh, the psalm talks about three different ways that we are called on uh, to respond in times like this. And uh, again, I just remind you, this is an election year. And so uh, if you take God at his word, what are you supposed to do in times like this? Well, number one, verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. Be wise. That's the first thing. Think about it. Save your best thinking for your understanding of God. Be wise. Figure out what's going on. Figure out what your response ought to be. You know, while others around us are trying to become independent and do their own thing, um, the alternative is for us to be wise. Uh, we can think through the implications of what God has shared with us. And we can be warned. Notice it says uh, in verse 10, Now therefore, be wise, be warned. You can know the future. Here's one of the saddest things that happened to the nation of Israel is that when Jesus came the first time, most people missed it. Why? Because they didn't take the warnings about his first coming seriously. And they didn't discern the times in which they were living. And so here's one of the first things I think that God invites us to do is to be wise and to be warned and to take especially what God has said about the future um, seriously and then adjust our living accordingly 
Uh, we can know the mystery of the secrets that are coming. And if we're wise, I think we'll rearrange our lives around the anointed one, God's anointed Messiah. And we'll rearrange our lives around his agenda and his will and what's eternal. We're at the crossroads, I think, in America, right? And uh, we have to make a decision about how we're going to go forward. And I think I hear some believers saying, well, you know, America used to be a Christian nation. But, you know, we've lost all that now. And um, Christians uh, sometimes, you know, get angry about that. We've lost what used to be ours and, uh, and blame other people and maybe go to a protest about it and so forth. But then pretty much withdraw from the society instead of being wise and saying, you know, what's my role as a Christ follower in the midst of a nation that's moving in the way that ours is? Some Christians just want to fit in to the larger society. Let's not make you know, a big deal about anything. And let's not, you know, rattle anybody's cages. And uh, I just want to fit in. You know, I have to keep my job and, and, and I want my secular life, you know, to just be what it's always been. But I want my church, you know, to be a bastion of conservatism so that my kids can grow up and know the truth and, and, and so on. But me, I'm just going to, um, you know, fit. And some people make a fist and some people wring their hands and, and say, you know, I just don't know what to do. But what's called for here is wisdom. Wisdom. Think about, you know, where God has placed you and think about the people that you interact with and think about what it means to be an American in these days and what it means to be a Christian in America. And think about what Jesus did and what Jesus would have us to do and be wise and be warned and be informed and know the word of God and know uh, the worldview that God reveals to us. Be wise about your place in it. Discern the times. You remember Jesus one time, he got really cranked up and he's like, you know, you people know how to predict the weather, but you can't discern the times in which you're living. You're really good at knowing, you know, what's going to happen with the weather. Remember when he said that? But I'm really frustrated that you can't understand that it's me that's here, the Messiah that's been talked about for hundreds of years, and you don't recognize me. Discern the times. Be wise. Be warned. You know, maybe we American Christians are not exempt from being um, what in Hebrews chapter 11 we're called is uh, exiles and aliens in this world. You know, for so long, our, our American society has been about God and country and embracing uh, values that have been based on scripture that sometimes we don't think that we need to be transformed as much as, you know, Iranians or uh, you know, uh, Muslims or Indians, Hindus or Israelis or whatever. But uh, what if, you know, it's not about God and country and values and morality? What if it's about the blood of Jesus? What if it's not about God and country, but about God and the kingdom of God? And living lives that are controlled by the very spirit of God, no matter what the conditions are on the surface. And what if it's not about, you know, lamenting the fact that uh, we've lost some ground in terms of God and country, but it's about the only way to gain ground is about advancing the gospel. And have we gone soft on helping people understand that apart from the blood of Jesus, there is no reconciliation with God? And have we settled for just God and country kind of values? And now that those are being taken away from us, is our Christianity rattled or are we forced to maybe go back to where the real roots of our uh, essence of our Christianity is in our relationship to God through the shed blood of God's anointed one, his Messiah, 
uh, Jesus, you know. And so be wise, be wise. I think that's the very first, be wise. The second uh, thing that's called for, look at verse 11. Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. Second, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with fear, with respect, with reverence. Serve the Lord. Um, you ever ask the question, who am I serving? Who am I serving? Who are you investing your life for? When I ask that question, a lot of people say, well, you know, I'm serving my family. Well, that's good, but it's not good enough. Right? Who are you serving? Why do you do what you do? Um, Well, I'm serving my boss. I have to stay on his good side. Or I'm I'm catering to my friends. Or I'm serving money. I'm serving power. I do what I do to preserve you know, I serve or I serve myself. If you say, well, you know, I live for me and for comforts and for fun and so forth. If I serve myself, we're back into the first three verses of this psalm. We want God to be out of it. We want to cut the bonds. We want to cut the ties, you know, and we want to just serve ourselves. And we're back to those original uh, problems. But have you ever made the decision to serve the Lord? With the balance of your life to say, you know what, I'm going to serve God. Uh, I'm going to serve the Lord with my life. We talk about servant leadership, and we, I like to uh, go back to this verse in Ephesians all the time. In Ephesians 2.10, uh, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. Like, there's no uh, haphazard kind of uh, things that happen to us, but... We're like in God's workshop, and he's molding us and shaping us, and he gives us gifts and, and personalities and uh, all kinds of experiences and so forth because God is preparing us for that work that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Is that our passion, to find out what that work is and to do it? You know, that we want to serve the Lord, that he created me for a purpose, and he's got a reason and, and so forth. One of the uh, scriptures that um, I think has... Uh, uh, meant a lot to me over the years is uh, in Jeremiah chapter 9. And uh, when I was a kid, somebody laid this on me. I think I probably heard it in a sermon someplace. But um, here's what it says. Thus says the Lord. Here's what God has to say. Let not the wise man boast about his wisdom. Remember this passage? And let not the mighty man boast about his might or his strength. And let not the rich man boast about his riches. But if you're going to boast about something, boast in this that you understand and know me. What's your boast in life? When we all get together for your funeral, what do you want people to say about you? What's your boast in life? And here, you know, God is saying to Jeremiah, he says, listen, find something to boast in, but let your boast be about this, that you know and you understand me, the living God, and my anointed one who I came so that you could know me. Right? Uh, Boast... In this, And then look what he goes on and he says, um, let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me <coughs> and that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. That's what I'm all about. You want to boast that you know me, then you practice steadfast love, righteousness, doing the right thing, you know, and, and um, justice, uh, justice. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. 
And so when I think about this and I realize, you know, that uh, God has an agenda for our lives and it's to serve him and his cause and his agenda in our short lifetimes uh, in order that we might uh, come alongside of what he's doing in our lives and in our world. Uh, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 is a rather famous, well-known passage of scripture. If you were to ask the question, what does God really want me to do with my life? Um, he has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? All right? To um, do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly uh, with your God. And then one more passage in uh, Zechariah, <clears throat> where uh, Zechariah uh, chapter 7 and verse 8 or verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But the people refused to pay attention and uh, turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped up their ears that they might not hear. And so, again, uh, to do justice is to... um, you know, love the marginalized. To do justice is to care for the vulnerable, uh, the immigrants, the refugees, the single moms, the orphans, the homeless, the elderly, and so on. It's always been God's plan, it seems to me, that his people would act different than the rest of the world. Way back in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 6, God said this to the people early on in Israel's history, Uh, Keep all these rules and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the people, uh, who, when they hear all these statutes, are going to say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near um, to it as the Lord our God is to us, and whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today. It was always God's plan for Israel and for his people, you know, to live different and that all the nations would see how they live and be attracted to the God who is the source of that uh, living. And that's true, I think, uh, has been true in the past. I I never like to uh, say that America's the same as Israel uh, because I don't think there is such a thing as a Christian nation. There's only Christian people. And, uh, but when we were the majority of people, uh, People looked to this country um, and saw that, you know, it operated on entirely different principles. And God blessed us. And uh, I think we're about to lose all of that. And so, again, uh, God isn't rattled by it, and I, but I do think it's important for us to uh, stop and think, what do I do when my country goes like this? Well, number one, be wise. Number two, serve. Serve the Lord. We talk about servant leadership Uh, Own the peace that God has assigned to you. The God of the universe became your servant. And so ultimately, I think a real satisfaction in life comes when we submit and serve God. Notice that 11th verse. It says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I love the fact that serving God leads to rejoicing. There's nothing better. There's no experience in life that brings more joy than knowing that God has used you. And you're able to submit to him and serve him. And so we don't serve out of obligation. We don't serve with a sour face. Uh, We don't serve by somebody twisting our arms. 
uh, we serve because we recognize that's what God has called us to do, and that's where the rejoicing is really found. And then the third uh, response, it seems to me, in this psalm, what do we do when our nation goes crazy? Um, And I love this, right? Verse uh, 12, kiss the son. Kiss the son. Kiss the anointed one of God. Uh, Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son. Let yourself fall in love with Jesus. It's not enough to just be wise and just use our heads and to make Christianity a head trip. It's not enough to just do things and serve, right? Uh, But the third component to this, uh, your heart has to be in it. Your heart has to be in it. Kiss the sun. Become a genuine worshiper of Jesus. In the Bible, a kiss can be either, either an expression of love or a symbol of submission. If you kiss a king, you know, on his uh, hand or his ring and so forth, it's a symbol of submission. Or uh, a kiss can be fake and be used uh, to deceive people, like when Judas kissed Jesus uh, on the cheek, right, to betray him and so forth. But uh, the point is, if you're going to respond to God who made you and, and who made the world that's rebelling against him, you have to express your feelings. You have to express your feelings. It, it can't just be a head thing or a doing thing. I think, uh, you know, uh, you have to use your head to be wise. You have to use your intellect to be wise enough to figure out what's going on. You have to give your best concentration to what God has to say uh, and know who Jesus really is. And then second, you have to use your will if you're going to serve God. You have to use your head. You have to use your will if you're going to serve God and uh, seek first his kingdom and, and his righteousness and submit to him and so forth. But third, you have to use your heart. You have to use your heart. Uh, While the world wants to kick the sun to the side of the road, we're going to kiss the sun. And the world's going to know that he's our hero and that he's the love of our life and that he's the one who occupies our hearts, you know, because nobody ever loved us more than Jesus. And he's the one that we're going to see face to face when he returns. And he's the one that we're going to spend eternity with. And so we develop a love relationship. Kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Don't allow your faith to be this stiff, distant kind of religion type thing. How does a believer respond when their country and when their world that they're living in wants to move away from God? Well, with wisdom, with serving, passionate serving, leadership, servant leadership, and with our hearts worshiping Jesus with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for Psalm 2. You know the day in which we live. You know the thoughts that are on our minds in this election year. We've been listening, Father, to uh, candidates uh, give their uh, ideas about what's wrong and what needs to happen and, and all the rest of it. And I'm so thankful that we can come to this psalm and realize this is really nothing new that this has been going on for a long time and that at the root of it all is the creator who has made people for himself, but people have rebelled. And uh, we thank you that you're a sovereign God and that you have laid out your plans, that you have revealed the mystery of your secrets about the future. We thank you that we can know, that we can be warned about what's coming, that we can know with confidence, Father, the validity of your word and that we can take your, your word at face value and build our lives around it. 
And uh, to that end, I pray that you would help us to use our best brains uh, to embrace and figure out, Father, exactly what you're telling us. And that we would uh, not be like the people, Father, that you laugh at, but that we would be people who have been reconciled to you through your anointed one, through your son, Jesus. And that, Father, we would, in fact, kiss the son. That we would, in fact, be worshipers of Jesus. And that the world would know, Father, that whatever good is in us is the result of that relationship which you've provided us through your anointed one, in whose name we pray this morning. Amen. We're going to ask our ushers now if they'd come and wait on us as we continue to worship through the giving of our tithes and offerings, and as we have the opportunity to sing one more time. Two more times, actually. <laughs>